can't we just dispense all the talk about culture and just follow Jesus and create a new culture in Christ? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. This is the All Things to All People podcast. I'm Michael Burns. Let's get to it. This is the All Things to All People podcast. I am Michael Burns, and this is episode seven of the podcast. We are continuing in the book, All Things uh, to All People, The Power of Cultural Humility, and we've moved now into section two, The Dynamics of Culture. Today, we're going to be in chapter six of the book called uh, The Blended Culture. And I don't think I've mentioned yet on the podcast at this point, I think I've failed to bring it up, is that uh, if you don't have a copy of this book and you would like one, you can find them at ipibooks.com. That's the publisher, IPI Books. Uh, Or you can go to Amazon or uh, something like that and get it. but uh, feel free to do that. Um, and, you know, thanks so much for listening, for uh, being with us uh, this long. Uh, as I record this, this is the first episode um, that I'm recording after uh, we started posting the episode. So I have a little bit of a lag time. I didn't want to run into the situation. A lot of uh, podcasters I know who are maybe, you know, that's not their full-time gig or a professional thing for them. Um, they would record podcasts, but then, uh, you know, something would come up, life would come up and, uh, they miss an episode or whatever. So I want to have a little bit of a buffer. Uh, so I started recording before I posted them. Uh, so as as we uh, record this today, we are uh, a week into, or just about a week, I think, maybe not quite a week, into the uh, what I am referring to as the COVID-19 exile period. The um, coronavirus has uh, looming, and you know it's certainly in uh, the United States and around the world. And so we are uh, on uh, kind of the the self quarantine, um, but <clears throat> you know I was really attempt, uh, tempted to break off and delve into those topics and talk about some of those things. We're not going to do that. I've decided that you know there's enough people out there talking about that topic, and I think in some respects, people maybe want to uh, have uh, some some outlets where they can get away from talk of that. So we're not going to focus on that. We're going to stay on topic today. But I do have some uh, really exciting news because I've, I've promised a couple times here and there that we would have guests from time to time. And uh, today I am coming through on that promise. And we have a guest here today uh, in the All Things to All People studio. I don't know if I could, that might be a stretch, um, but it's a pretty good setup, but we actually have the guy responsible for all the technological marvel and the setup that we have here to enable 
me to do this podcast, and that's that's my friend Josh. Say hey, Josh. Hello, everybody. All right. And so Josh is just going to kind of join in, and uh, he might comment from time to time. I might ask him a, a few things, but um, l- let me ask you this, Josh, All though. Right. On a, on a scale of one to 10, with one being completely inept and 10 being competent, okay. how much of an idiot am I when it comes to technological things like setting up this podcast? Wow. <laughs> Be honest. Let's go with a solid three. A three. Okay. I'll take that. That's encouraging. That's that's better uh, than than I may uh, have even thought. Um, so you pick, it, you pick it up fast. Yes, thank you. And and notice that uh, my scale was from complete utter incompetency to just simply competent. Not even like really competent. You know, th- there would have to be another scale, right? Um, like an eleven to twenty. So um, a three. Um, I will take, but if, if you've been listening regularly up to this point, you'll, you'll know that I think in episode three, I talked about, uh, the fact that on episode two, uh, it took me four attempts, uh, before, uh, I was able to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and Josh, you've really set this system up so that a four-year-old could use it. Haven't you? I did my best. Yeah. Uh, well, see, your best was not good enough, was it? Because <laughs> I managed not. to uh, break the system. But I, I will report that since then, uh, I think I'm slowly figuring things out and we're, uh, we're moving along and um, I'm starting to figure out all the little buttons. I think it was episode three that I also figured out the mute button, uh, the cough button on there. So that's, right. you know, we're, we're making progress, hey? Um, so today we're going to talk about the blended culture, and it's really this idea of, you know, we, we bring in, uh, every one of us brings a culture into the church. It's, uh, you know, and the idea, I, I've had people, I don't know if you've come across this idea, Josh, but, um, and, and Josh is pretty knowledgeable on this topic because everything I record, everything I teach, poor Josh is sitting there for most of it. Uh, helping me or recording it or, you know, going over it in some way. Uh, but I hear people a lot say, oh, well, we don't have a culture in our church, or I don't have a culture. Can't we just, Jesus is our culture. Mm-hmm. And it's not really as simple as that, right? Because, right. you know, the scriptures say uh, to sing, but whose culture are we going to use to determine what songs we sing or how we sing? You know, and we could give that scenario to a hundred different things. So uh, let, let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to read. You feel free, Josh, to interrupt at any time and make any comments. Um, and, and we'll see how this goes. All right. Sounds good. Deal. All right. You shouldn't know the name Jesus of Nazareth. The life of an obscure son of a day laborer in the first century Palestine should hardly register in the annals of history. In fact, The knowledge of a peasant from Galilee should have never lived much beyond the friends and family who knew him personally. Once he was put to death in Jerusalem for claiming to be the long-promised Messiah of the Jewish people, that should have been it. The one thing that everyone knew, including the Romans, was was that if there was to be a true Jewish Messiah, 
the singular accomplishment of his life to prove that he was the Messiah was that he would defeat and drive out any occupying pagans from the land of Israel. Jesus' death meant none of that would happen. So he could not be the Messiah they were hoping for. You shouldn't know his name. But less than 20 years after his death, his name had already reached the mighty city of Rome, and not just in some routine report from the... Did you hear that noise, Josh? That was my alarm uh, reminding me. See, I have my ringer. I have everything else turned off except the alarms on my phone I cannot turn off. Um, I think that was reminding me to take my vitamins. Um, sorry about that interruption. And here... At the All Things to All People podcast, we're so high-tech that we don't stop and oh. re-record things. We just power through Press things on. like that. That's right. Let me continue here. Uh, because of his resurrection, proving he was who he claimed to be, his name spread quickly. There were communities of people popping up around the Roman Empire and in Rome itself, worshiping Jesus not only as God's Messiah, but is the embodiment of God himself. The existence of these Messiah-following communities was a source of outrage for Jewish communities around the empire. They saw the Jesus people as blasphemers who were now convincing pagan Gentiles that they were part of God's family. Can you imagine all these non-Jews from nations all around the empire who were still living in their Gentile cultures thinking that they were part of God's people? This had to be stopped. It appears that this controversy came to a troublesome confrontation in Rome in the late A.D. 40s. Not all the details have survived the passage of time, but there is some evidence that a series of commotions of some sort broke out between Jews and Christians living in Rome. In the eyes of the Roman elite, this was a Jewish problem. They made little distinction at the time between Judaism and Christianity, which they saw as simply an offshoot of Judaism if they even bothered to notice a difference at all. We don't know the scale or scope of these confrontations, but there does seem to be a record of commotions breaking out because of the troublemakers known as the troublemaker known as Christus. Not wanting to deal with these disruptions coming out of the Jewish neighborhoods, the Emperor Claudius took the drastic step of expelling Jews from Rome in AD 49. How comprehensive this uh, expulsion was is unknown, but it does seem to have impacted most Jews, including Jewish Christians. It would appear that most or all of the Jewish Christians, including Aquila and Priscilla, left Rome during this time. For five years, the church in Rome was dominated by Gentiles and may have been exclusively Gentile. In AD 54, the new emperor Nero reversed Claudius's decree and allowed the Jews to return, which again included Jewish Christians. Suddenly, a church that had been dominated by Gentile cultures for five years had a strong Jewish influence once again. This caused tensions. Even though Paul had not planted the disciple communities in Rome and had not yet been there, he decided to write them to guide them through this struggle. Now, we can only speculate on his motives, but if we examine his letter to the Romans, it appears that perhaps because he had guided so many other churches that were a mix of cultures and nationalities, Paul believed that he had the understanding to guide the Roman Christians through their crisis. He also wished to spread the gospel into Spain 
using the church in Rome as a base. So he needed them to be strong and capable of supporting such an undertaking. The Gentile believers, it seems, were struggling with welcoming their Jewish brothers and sisters back fully into the community. They wanted to keep things the way they were comfortable with. They no longer wanted to make room for Jewish culture and sensitivities. And in their response, the Jewish Christians don't seem to have been any more gracious. Each side refused to accept the other cultural approach to Christianity. They would not accept their practices or their special days, and there were a host of other issues. The text of Paul's letter even seems to indicate that some of the Gentiles were asserting that God had moved on past the Jews and that Christianity was now for the other nations, so that there was little point in proclaiming the gospel to the Jews any longer. Paul spends the entire letter explaining to them the story of what God has been doing and promising since the beginning and why God's people must consist of all the nations. When the theology of all that has been established in practice, they must learn to accept one another's culture, which Paul directly addresses in Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7. But just before he gets to that passage, he lays out a very helpful approach when it comes to culture, beliefs, and expressions. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, through the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may approve what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2, according to the Lexham English Bible translation. In this passage, we find two of what I believe are three different responses to the concept of culture in God's kingdom. Do not conform. Paul says, to the present age. Rather, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So there is a rejection and a transformation, but there is a third aspect that I think must be considered between these two. We must reject some aspects of culture and transform to a new one, but before we can work toward full transformation, we must add the heart of inclusion that Paul described when he calls believers to be all things to all people. That's not to say that this is a simple three-step process that we go through one time and then call it a day. It's an ongoing and overlapping process that must be repeated and returned to. But if we remove any of the three responses, we'll wind up with something very different from a culture that can contain the gathering of the nations. Because this is so vital... It's imperative that we look at these three general responses that will serve as principles to keep in mind and will guide us as we continue to consider the role that culture does and should have in the church. Now, Josh, let me stop here and say, first of all, do you have any thoughts you want to add to that or anything that pops to mind? Not yet. Not yet. Which is rare, because usually Josh is full of inserting his opinions into situations. Um, Josh calls me two or three times a night and says, here's what I think should be done. Um, I'm kidding. Josh doesn't do any of that. Um, But I don't know, Josh, have you ever thought about the fact that the beginning of the chapter, it it talks about um, just the simple idea that we shouldn't even know who Jesus is. Is like I don't know if we stop and think about how amazing that is. That you know, 
it, it's not like we know everybody in the ancient world, right? But, you know, yeah. And uh, I mean, there's a handful of people that have survived. Think about that. Like ninety nine point something percent of the people who lived at this time are just gone to history. Oh yeah. Nobody remembers that they exist, and yet here we are, two thousand years later. Uh, you know, ordering our lives and and wrestling with laying down our own culture, which is something people don't tend to do, right? Um, because of who this Jesus is. Now, Josh, you have kind of an interesting cultural mix uh, in your background, don't you? That's right. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about that mix? Yeah. Um, my mom is Vietnamese and my dad is of Norwegian heritage. Um, I think third and or fifth generation Norwegian, depending on mother and father's side. Um, my mother is from Vietnam. So. Yeah. So you're the classic Norwegian Vietnamese. Oh, yeah. Mix. yeah oh, you yeah. see that. Yeah. You see that all the time. Of course. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so you definitely, I think, can identify with some of what we're talking about here with just different cultures coming together and the, and the challenge of it. Um, I'm going to assume that your mom and dad have different cultural, uh, you know, uh, norms that they right. follow. And there's probably been some clashes uh, over the years with that. Yeah, they have. Um, uh, they've definitely grown through time and and they have a you know a great process now they've landed in a great place as far as you know understanding where each other are coming from but yeah. uh there are still some things that, that you know my mom might say man dad always does it this way i don't get why he has to do it this way and sure. it's just uh you know it's a it's a it's, sure it's kind of an ongoing thing i i get it my wife and i still have those uh you know, little arguments, we'll, we'll call them, um, sure. <laughs> about culture constantly. But, all right, let's jump back into, uh, let's go into the next section here. The first is rejection or refusal to conform to ungodly practices. Paul says, do not be conformed to this age. Some translations render this section something like, do not be conformed to the patterns of the world. Not all aspects of every culture align with the baptized Christ-like life of a kingdom citizen. We need to carefully examine our own cultural upbringing and tacit assumptions to measure them against God's word. If we don't take this intentional step, we will be involuntarily conformed or squeezed into the cultural mode in which we were brought up. Sometimes that culture is a fine vehicle for God's kingdom. Occasionally, elements of it are not. I've visited some countries where the cultural norm is that fathers do not engage actively in the lives of their children. They work and provide for the family, but the rearing and training of the kids is considered the work of the women in the family. The fathers remain distant from their child emotionally and spiritually and do not lead them. This, of course, is contrary to the biblical model in which fathers are to connect with their children and directly train and discipline them in the way of the Lord. New disciples in those countries or cultures do not tend to immediately embrace this biblical model unless they are directly taught and challenged. The same thing is true for all of us. We simply do not grasp right away every aspect of life that is touched and changed by the gospel. 
It's not acceptable to assert that this distance between father and child is cultural, and thus we should embrace this, the cultural expressions and standards in this case when measured against God's word. This is shown to be something that needs to be rejected and relearned. By way of another example, there are many cultures around the world that are deeply rooted in what is called honor-shame. Uh, and I'm going to assume, Josh, that that's probably your mother's kind of rootedness culturally is honor-shame. Absolutely. Right? Yep. So you know what I'm talking about here. Yep. People in these groups will avoid being shamed or intentionally shaming others at all costs. Because of this, they have in many ways developed a strong tolerance for what those in other cultural groups would consider lying. You say what you must so that others are not disrespected or caused to lose face in public. That's considered good and perfectly acceptable. But we know that falsehoods have no place on the lips of kingdom people as Deeply rooted as that instinct might be, someone from one of these groups must resolve to retrain themselves and reject this entrenched attribute of their learned behavior. They must not conform. The materialism that characterizes the American dream culture is another example of a cultural value that needs to be truly jettisoned when we enter into the kingdom. As we come back here, Josh, let me ask you a question. We talked here about, uh, you know, patterns of our culture that, that we can't conform to when we come into Christ. And, uh, you know, even, even made reference there uh, by way of example as the honor-shame culture. Uh, what does that bring to mind for you? Have you seen any of that growing up or can confirm any of that? Yeah, I'm not sure how articulate this will be. I'm just going to try to uh, kind of explain the situation. It's, it's here. not like so. we're setting a real high standard of articulation on this podcast. Uh, so I, I think the bar is low. So you'll you'll fit right in. That's uh, exactly why I decided to sit in today. Right there, you go. Um, but but yeah, basically, I mean, the first things that I can think of is right away is uh, you know if I have an uncle and he doesn't understand something. Uh, translation of something or something in English or whatever it is, it's a little bit off. But instead of, you know, sitting down and helping him really learn it and understand, the, it, the easier thing to do and the thing to make him not feel like an idiot for not knowing something about a language that isn't his own, his not his first language, but rather than explaining that and making him have to learn something from somebody who's uh, younger or maybe not in a position to teach would be to maybe twist it a little bit, say something just enough so he'll understand it, but not um, not really the truth. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something like he's. Oh, let's see. What's a good example that's come up? Um, ah, there was an an additional uh, 
charge on his rent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, he was frustrated. He, he, what is this just additional charge? And it was something like uh, an insurance thing that he wasn't. It was hard for him to understand why that's important or what the necessity of it is. Sure. And so my mom explained it in a way of uh, saying, "Oh, everybody has to pay this because they." I don't even have know what she said. She, it basically by her saying. Oh, everybody needs to pay it. You're not the only one, blah, blah, blah. Then that kind of made it okay. But really, it might, that might not have been the case. It might yeah. have been something that showed up on his bill. Um, so, so culturally, you can kind of massage the truth to so that somebody doesn't... Feel like they're dumb or that they don't understand uh, something. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's probably a skill that you've employed with me. Um <laughs> I'll have to keep my journal separate from uh, what you see. Yeah, see, seeing as I just set it up as you can't conform <laughs> to that pattern, uh, but Josh has been forced to uh, do that. Let's get back to the reading here, next section. Since we covered much of what it means to be all things to all people in chapter four, allow me to briefly discuss here what it is not. Being all things to all does not mean that we must abandon our own cultural identity and practices. Cultural flexibility does not imply that we have no culture, just as having a flexible schedule does not mean that you have no schedule. It simply means that we understand that our way of doing things is a way and not the way. It implies a willingness to learn from others and not automatically assume that our culture is the norm for Christianity or for human behavior in general. And, you know, Josh, the reason I wrote that paragraph is because as I speak on the topic of culture, a lot of people will come up and go like, well, you know, especially if they're from the dominant culture, they'll be like, well, what are you saying? Like, my culture's bad. I got to drop it. No, we all have a culture. Uh, our culture's good. It's okay to prefer your culture. I like my culture. <laughs> you know, when I go travel other places, like, I like to come home. I, right. I like uh, my routines. I I think you kind of know that. I'm kind of a routine guy. I like my little oh, yeah. world. Um, you know, I like doing things my way. In fact, you know, I, I look on the internet and I see everybody freaking out about this quarantine situation um, for, you know, the, the coronavirus. And I'm like, dude, I'm an introvert. I've been like wishing for this my whole life. This is like amazing um, right now. So, uh, I can just follow my routine and, you know, do the day exactly the way I want. I've been busy um, preparing materials and stuff for the church, but um, mm-hmm. it's kind of in my own way, right? So I like my culture. Uh, back to the reading. Being all things to all people does not mean that our culture is bad and something to be shed. I want to be a servant in my marriage and meet my wife's needs as much as I'm able, but that doesn't mean that my needs are wrong, inferior, or something to be ignored or rejected altogether. This is not a dismissal of what we've learned and experienced. It only becomes problematic when we are not open to the way of others. It does not mean that the cultures of others are better by default either. It's a common response for people who have been challenged to be more accepting of and open to other cultures to retort that their culture is being made out to be the bad guy or inferior or is under attack, while the culture of others is being treated as pristine and perfect. Quite frankly, that's a bit of an immature response. As disciples, we must be aware that when all someone has known is domination or superiority, 
equality or flexibility feels like oppression. And so obviously, Josh, that's kind of making the point that I just uh, said, which reminds me maybe I should read keep reading before I comment uh, because I think like, Ooh, a new thought popped into my head. I want to make sure to say this. And then I realize as I go on reading, it's like, Oh, my brain works the same way every time because it immediately went to that as I was writing it as well. Back to the reading. Cultural flexibility does not mean that we won't ever get to do things in a way that's comfortable for us culturally. For example, Let's say we're striving towards exploration and inclusion in a music ministry that has encompassed different genres of music, but all of them fall under the broader range of so-called white styles of music. Cultural inclusion does not mean that we'd move to Sunday morning sets of only Latino, Asian, and gospel music and remove the types of music that used to dominate. All groups of people are called to be all things to one another, not just the historically dominant group. We seek inclusion of all, not exclusion of the dominant culture. Uh, and I think I'll get into this more, Josh, but I, I, I think the point there is that, um, you know, a lot of times for the dominant culture, it'll feel like we're picking on them. Right. But that's just because the non-dominant cultures have always had to adapt and adopt. And so now we're calling everybody to do that. And when you're in the dominant culture, you maybe haven't had to do that before. So yeah. it feels yeah. painful and they're you, right? not used to the uncomfortability where exactly. others have been used to it for a long time. Exactly. It's like working out for the first time, right? Yes. And your muscles get sore. Yes. Um, we're going to need to let the dog out because she's got to go uh, patrol the neighborhood. Right. Uh, once again, folks, we're not going to cut that out. You're just getting real life here. If my dog barks, you're going to hear it. But we have let her out of the room, so hopefully she can go safely patrol the neighborhood out of uh, microphone shot, which we should have learned, shouldn't we have? Today already, mm -hmm. right? That's because true. Josh and I are recording this podcast episode, but just a little bit ago we recorded a uh, sermon that will go online and go out to the church because we're all in quarantine, and same thing happened. We got a little bit into the sermon, and uh, my dog Shaka Zulu was in the room here and then started barking, and we... Had to let her out. And now we've repeated the same mistake again. So, well done, Josh. Let's pat ourselves on the back. Of course. Let's go back to reading here. Embracing the ethos of being all things to all people does not mean that I will love your way. After over 20 years of my wife and I merging two very different cultural backgrounds into one household, we have created a new blended culture in many respects. Our sons are comfortable in three cultures now. Hers, mine, and the new one we've created together. And Josh, I'm going to assume that the same is true for you. You have your mom's, dad's, and there's kind of a new one, and yeah. you can operate in all three of those. Yeah, right? it's a subconscious thing. It, it, the term, there's actually potentially a term for it called switching, switching between cultures. As yes, you, in exactly. Different places. Yeah. Yep, yep, there you go. All right, uh, back to the reading. But I do my best to participate in them and not just tolerate Although, admittedly, I still have a long way to go. I'm not always as flexible as I want to be. It continues to be a work in progress. To return to a musical example, if I grew up loving country music and feel that I can best express myself in worship through that style, I may never be able to worship with the same passion and authenticity, though 
through an upbeat gospel song, but that doesn't mean that I should stand there like a board and simply tolerate that cultural style of worship either. The question is, am I willing to join you in an expression that helps you and connects with you? Am I willing to step outside of my preferences and comfort zone for your benefit? When we're all willing to do that, the kingdom community can be all that it should be. I think there's something important to mention here. Some might be tempted to reject this line of reasoning when it comes to musical styles. Music is not the only area where this conflict might occur, but it is an important and very tangible one, so we'll continue to use it as a representative. Let's say that a church leadership decided that the worship music was too dominated by one cultural group and preference and wanted to diversify. Aren't we just caving in, the argument might go, to the preferences of one group or another? Isn't worship about God and not our preferences? This line of thinking is flawed on two accounts. First, it ignores the fact that one group has already set its preferences in place as though its culture is the default. It's like walking into a room, planting yourself in the best chair, and then telling everyone else that they should just sit wherever and not worry about what chair they got. Which, Josh, I do that regularly. I take the chair I want and then let everybody else fight it out. Well aware. <laughs> As, yes, you are. That works for you because you already took the best chair. Second, this is not about likes and preferences. We don't seek to become all things to all people because we're trying to cater to their likes. Diverse music, to use our example, is not about what I like but about how I can best express myself to God in worship. Diversity ensures that we all learn new ways of expression in worship and that we can all have times when we can freely and most naturally express ourselves to God. In the gathering of the nations, no one group will have it their way all the time. But it also shouldn't be that their style of expression is never or almost never included. Josh, let me ask you this question. Is it possible to, say, be singing a style of music that's not your favorite or not natural to you and still worship God just in a way just as pleasing to God as if you were singing a song that you loved. Is that possible? For me or in general? It's totally possible. Yeah, right? It's totally possible. I mean, possible. We, we lose sight of that. Like, yeah. oh, I don't like this style of music or I don't like this song. Like, some, somehow that uh, lessens our ability to worship and when, when that happens, it does become about us, right? right? Yeah, you get self-centered. You're, you're yes. thinking about your, what you like, what exactly. you want, rather than everybody else. Exactly. And, and, and I actually think, I don't know that we stop to think about this a lot, but I think actually in the sacrifice, in the, you know, I'll participate in my brother and sister's way, I'll yep. get out of my comfort zone, there's, that's almost a greater act of worship than singing the songs that I like, right? That's what I believe, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and not to make this all about singing. This is just one example right. of community life. Uh, amen. Let's go, let's go ahead and uh, keep reading here. According to organizational cultural expert Edgar Sheen, there are four possible patterns that may evolve when cultures of different groups are combined. The first is separation. This is when the groups are theoretically together as one, but they remain largely segregated under the umbrella of being one community. In these scenarios, there's little crossover, and although they may cooperate and align with one another, they do not truly mix in any significant way. The second is domination. 
This is when one culture overwhelms the others and gives them no room to have meaningful influence in the group. The third is conflict, wherein the groups vie for influence and power, each believing to some degree that their agenda is more important than the larger group mission. Finally, there's blending, when subgroups take the best of each culture and combine them to create a new, stronger culture given the mission at hand. In many ways, being all things to all people is a blending of cultures. Paul describes this when he says that believers should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. While this principle has broad spiritual applications for the believer, it should not be missed that Paul's direct application is in the context of helping divergent cultures come together as one body. Romans 12 begins with the appeal to be living sacrifices because that's what they signed up for when they died to themselves in order to enter the life of Christ. Think of Romans 6, 1 through 14. The world typically divides along cultural and tribal lines, but not so with them. They must not conform to this pattern and the pattern of the tribal conditioning. Rather, they must be transformed and come together as one. He will go on to urge them to recognize that, in fact, they belong to one another, Romans 12.5, and should do everything in their power to serve and build one another up. As Paul moves into chapters 14 and 15, he will lay out in detail what it looks like to accept one another and even to start moving toward becoming all things to all. When we engage in this type of blending, what will inevitably result from the transformation is a new culture in many respects. In chapter 3, I discussed that there are at least four principles that we can glean from 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, where Paul most clearly lays out the directive to be all things to all people and become a transformed culture. First, we must become familiar with our own culture, including preferences and limitations. Second, we must be willing to give up our rights and the ease of always having a comfortable cultural climate. Third, we need to become students of other cultures and be willing to embrace and engage in their cultural expressions. This culminates in cultural flexibility, being willing to transform and create new cultural expressions and hybrids. Life in the Roman church of the mid-50s AD must have been challenging. There was, there were still relatively inex, they were still relatively inexperienced in the process of bringing Jewish and Gentile cultures together as one body and one family in Christ. Being free from Jewish influence for half a decade and then suddenly confronted with it again was a unique situation, even in the first century world. From Paul's letter, we discern that this difficult situation had caused some hard feelings and threatened divisions in the church. When Gentiles in the world before Christ converted to Judaism, they accepted all the cultural as well as religious practices of the Jews. They became Jews in almost every way possible. That mindset clearly continued in the first years of Christianity for many. Most Jews, especially those who lived in Jerusalem, assumed that Gentile converts would embrace not only Christianity, but also the Jewish culture. A big part of that was integrating Jewish food customs based on the Old Covenant law and Jewish holidays. Why would the Jewish believers assume that new Christians would embrace their culture? Didn't they know that these things were rooted in the Old Covenant that no longer held sway over them? They probably did at a theoretical level, even if it took them a while to work that all out. The Jewish people had been defined by these practices for centuries, 
and in many cases had been martyred by pagans for the conviction of holding to these requirements and observances. They weren't just cultural preferences in their minds. This was their identity. Now they found themselves in community with Gentiles whose cultural traditions were deeply offensive and often felt sinful. How could they possibly live together as one? This is exactly what Paul attempts to cover in Romans 14 and 15 with teaching that was deeply and specifically relevant to the situation in Rome at that time. One of the important principles in the science of scriptural interpretation and application known as hermeneutics is to take a principle from the biblical text and shake it free from the situation-specific direction so that it can be applied to any similar situation in a more universal fashion. Paul was guiding the Roman believers through unique controversies that they were facing, but he gave them very helpful principles that become clear when we remove them from the specific circumstances they were wading through. Paul gave them principles to apply in their situation. But when we look at those principles by themselves, they prove to be useful to us today when it comes to blending different groups in an ongoing multicultural setting. I'll attempt to simplify Paul's guiding principles and show how they are universal tenets that must give direction to our lives. How about we do this every other one, Josh? I'll read one and then you read one. Sounds all right? good. Number one. View your cultural expressions of worship and faith as a way to do things and not the way, Romans 14, 1 through 3. Number two, the cultural expressions of others are equally valid to your own, Romans 14, 4. Number three, do not judge one another's convictions and cultural practices as sinful if they are not, Romans 14, 5 through 12. Number four, don't force your cultural practice on others if it is something that would bother their conscience. Romans 14, 13-17 And choose love for your brothers and sisters over your cultural preferences. Romans 14, 19-21 Number 6 If you don't like the cultural practices of others and they are not sinful, keep it to yourself. Romans 14, 22-23 Keep it to yourself. That's a good one. Like it. Number seven, make every effort to accept the practices and expressions of one another and participate in them whenever possible, Romans 15, 1 through 13. Paul was steering the church toward a blended culture, which is not automatic and not easy to do. For the Gentile cultures of the first century, the primary tasks were twofold. The first was not to look down on, judge, and dismiss the practices of their Jewish brothers and sisters. The second was not to conform to worldly practices that they were clearly not fitting for that, that were clearly not fitting for the kingdom of God. For example, a deep part of the Gentile culture at the time was that it was considered perfectly acceptable for a married person to have sex with a slave of any gender. That was not considered to be adultery or immoral at all. Paul makes clear in passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 3 through 6 that this is not an acceptable cultural practice in the kingdom. When he warns Gentiles away from sexual immorality, he's calling them to reject the acceptable culture of their time. And Josh, let me just stop here for a second and say uh, another element of this uh, that we won't get into a lot, but just to keep in the back of our minds is that, um, you know, when he writes to Rome, for instance, 
uh, the Gentiles are people of status. They have, you know, the, right. the culture outside of the church. They have privilege. They have power. Uh, the Jews don't. So inside the church, even even though they're mine now, inside Christianity as a whole at this time, the Jews still kind of have right. the power. They're the dominant. dominant. It, it, it's really multi-layered here, right? Because yeah. the church, the Jews tend to be the dominant culture. Um, in society as a whole, the Gentiles tend to be a dominant culture. But then in Rome, it's kind of flipped back and forth a little yeah. bit here. So it's it's really complex. Yeah. Let's finish up the chapter here. For the Jews, the primary tasks were also twofold. The first was the same as for the Gentiles. Don't look down on and dismiss cultural preferences and practices of your fellow disciples. Participate and accept where you can. The second was to not attempt to force the Gentiles to their cultural ways. If Jewish believers wanted to continue to observe aspects of the Jewish culture, like circumcision, food restrictions, and Sabbath or holiday observances, that was fine. But when they demanded that Gentiles do so as well in order to be considered true Christians, they were then, as Paul put it so confrontationally, causing them to turn, quote, to a different gospel, Galatians 1.6. It is indeed a dangerous thing to marry culture to the gospel and insist that the two are inseparable. This raises a question. Would Paul have stood against the Jews, gently inviting Gentiles into aspects of their culture and teaching them to participate if they so chose, but allowing them the freedom to decide not to? I think it's clear that Paul would have celebrated that approach and enjoyed the nuances of the blended and transformed culture that this would have created. Well, that brings uh, chapter six, episode seven, to a close. Next time, we will get into chapter seven, entitled, This Is Me. And we're really going to get into the challenge of identity that culture brings. Uh, Josh, you have any closing thoughts before we uh, call it a day here? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here, Josh. It was it was fun. Um this, it's fun to do the podcast, but it's a lot more fun to have uh, yeah. somebody here uh, just in general. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.